tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Take a moment to tease you, to also subtly whisper in your ear and excite you with thoughts of dark and diabolical delights. If so, then I can tell you we have some news coming on next week's episode about two new projects we're working on. Two audio shows which will fill you with knowledge about horror and those who create it. I shan't say much more now. But stay tuned and make sure you are firmly and most decidedly braced for what's in store. See, that wasn't too unpleasant now, was it? And speaking of things which aren't too unpleasant, I dare say it's time. So now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we join a nurse who regularly experiences the joy of childbirth. The baby's first cry, the smiling happy mother, the union of parent and offspring. A truly heartfelt time for all. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mediogre, we discover one birth that led to horror rather than happiness. Performing this tale is Danielle McRae, So embrace the gift of life, but don't get too complacent. Not every child is born equal, and you may end up regretting taking that job in the maternity ward. I used to be a nurse. I spent or borrowed, I should say, tens of thousands of dollars just to get my education. Not to mention all the time I spent in school, labs, and doing dirty work as a certified nursing assistant. I've been elbow deep in just about any bodily fluid you can think of. None of it fazed me. I loved my job. I loved helping people. I found the human body fascinating, and there is no greater reward than helping to save a life. But one day, something horrible happened, and I can't bring myself to step foot inside another hospital again. I landed a job in the maternity ward. This was something I'd pushed for quite some time, as I love working with babies. I love introducing parents to their new child, Even if the labor process was horrendous, handing a new mother her baby son or daughter was well worth it. Sure, there were some bad days, but 
none like this one. The day had started out like any other. We received a call from the emergency department giving us a hurried report of a young Hispanic girl who appeared to be in active labor. She was not a patient of any obstetric provider at our hospital and had no medical records. The transport staff from the ED brought the woman to our labor and delivery area in a wheelchair and handed us what little paperwork was available. This was a normal occurrence, so no big deal. They are not to do vaginal exams on pregnant women due to risk of infection to the mom and baby couplet. We did the exams here. A man followed behind the transport team claiming to be the father. He was a white male, maybe mid-30s. He wore a suit and tie with sunglasses. He looked like an extra in the Men in Black series. I was surprised he didn't have a radio earpiece. When asked if he was the father, he paused as if he had to think about it before saying, yes, with little to no emotion whatsoever. We didn't have time to ponder how peculiar this man was because his wife's significant other needed to be examined as soon as humanly possible. Once she arrived on the floor with the strange man in tow, she was asked to empty her bladder and change into a gown. I will never forget this woman's face. She was Latina, beautiful, early 20s, even wincing with contractions. I could catch glimpses of her gorgeous brown eyes. These aren't things you notice when a woman goes into labor, but for some reason, the details stuck with me. The patient got into bed, and the fetal monitors were put into place. It was difficult to communicate with her as she only spoke Spanish. I only knew enough Spanish to order food at a Mexican restaurant. Maybe. Poor thing seemed so frightened. I hurt inside knowing that the language barrier severely limited my capacity to help this young lady. I turned to her father for his help to calm and be a support to his wife. I remember the father standing in the corner of the room out of everyone's way. His hands crossed over one another, covering his belt line. He looked bored. Most men in his position were either freaking out or trying to do anything to help, or offered a hand to squeeze. But this man just stood there like he was the secret service and the wall was the president. The cold-hearted jackass just stood there, not seeming to care about the distress his wife was in. He appeared to be distant and uncaring to the point that I wanted to get into his face and call him out on his callous behavior. I hoped his wife saw him for how he really was and dumped his sorry ass. She was dilated to seven centimeters and was 80% F-faced. She was assessed for any abnormalities or bleeding. There didn't seem to be any problems. Just another birthday for another baby. Hopefully. The woman seemed so delirious and frantic. She fought the staff every once in a while, as if she would be able to escape in her condition. The anesthesiologist came in to help her with her pain. He knew a smattering of Spanish and was able to explain what an epidural spinal anesthetic was, along with the risks and benefits. She was able to calm down enough to give consent and have the epidural placed. 
At her next vaginal exam, she was at nine centimeters and fully F-faced. It wouldn't be much longer now. Dr. Thomas was paged once again and was given the patient's current state of labor. He said that he was on his way. We set up the delivery table for the doctor, which included all of the possible instrumentation that he preferred for a vaginal delivery and cutting the umbilical cord. The nursery nurses were setting up the warmer with the supplies that they need to catch the baby, wait, measure, and assess him or her. A brief time elapsed, and the patient was trying to push. I checked her again. She was 10 centimeters dilated and ready to go. Where was Dr. Thomas? I bet the jerk was still downstairs flirting with that post-op nurse. I hoped his wife would find out. In the meantime, I was going to have to deliver the baby. Then his nose was going to be out of joint, and he would report me for a nurse-assisted delivery. Like she was supposed to cross her legs and wait for his majesty's arrival. I don't think so. Her bed was converted to a birthing bed. I showed her how to breathe and use her contractions to her benefit. I told her to push. She started to ramble in Spanish, most of which I did not catch. Her husband still remained cold and aloof in the corner of the room. Her bowels evacuated onto the operating table. This, of course, was normal for childbirth. I only mentioned it because the mess slightly obstructed what I saw next. All of a sudden, there was a gush of blood from her uterus which also made it difficult to get a view of what was going on. At this point, the baby's head should have been crowning, but no baby emerged. I put my hand below the vaginal area to be sure the baby didn't fall into the mess on the table. Suddenly, a fully grown human hand emerged from the woman's vagina, grabbing my wrists. It pulled with surprising strength, as if it were trying to suck me into the woman's body. I my feet and tried to break free of the thing's grasp. After the hand, a forearm emerged. Another set of fingers pushed their way alongside the first forearm, which still held my wrist. As the second hand emerged, the woman's vaginal and anal cavities tore into a single opening. The woman's pelvis snapped as both invasive arms made it out of the unfortunate woman. This was impossible. What looked like a fully grown man was tearing at the woman's flesh trying to escape her body. The vaginal tear was making its way up past her umbilicus. A man was crawling out of her ribcage, entangled in her entrails. How could a fully grown man fit inside this tiny little woman? The man was grayish in color, with translucently pale skin. I could see a vascular road map underneath his skin. He was completely hairless. And when he opened his mouth in what looked like a silent scream, I could see that he had no teeth. Just then, the father pulled out a pistol from behind his back and shot the thing in the head, killing it instantly. He shot the woman who was beyond saving anyways. 
The man pulled out a badge and told everyone to exit the room and block off all entries. He assured us more help was on the way. A bunch of men in suits came and evacuated the entire floor. All of us who witnessed the event had to sign a bunch of documents swearing secrecy. But I can't keep this bottled up inside. Whatever happened was predicted by our government. I don't know if it was a fluke or if it could happen again. All I know is that I am never stepping foot in a hospital again. The thought of sex makes me want to vomit. So here I am, migrating place to place, finding odd jobs, none of which I am proud of. One thing that particularly unsettles me is that I remember hearing the woman shout, Soy Virgen! Teeth. Oh, they're a pain in the mouth. Or they can be if you get tooth decay or suffer from long-term poor oral hygiene. For such tiny, inconsequential things, teeth can hurt an unreasonable amount. But in this tale, shared with us by author Gerardo Y. Garant, we join a man who's finally getting his teeth fixed. All good, if only the doctor didn't seem a, a little off today. I join Jeff Clement, Peter Lewis, and Graham Rowett in performing this tale. So sit down, lie back, and open wide. Don't look down in the mouth. You might not like what you see there. At least not when you've met the dentist. supposed to be a routine procedure. If I had somehow been able to see what that morning held in store for me, I would have gladly waited for the next available appointment. As it happened, I found myself in a cramped waiting room that was too warm and smelled of sweet sickness. It was painted a bland tan color with white borders. I always hated that color scheme, even as a young lad. A large animated tooth exclaimed that he felt so much better after seeing the dentist. <sighs> there was a small flat screen TV on the back wall and a small area with toys for children in need of a distraction. There were a few children in the area trying to figure out the puzzle game that sat attached to the small table. The flat screen displayed some morning talk show or another and there was an odor like some unholy mixture of bad B.O., disinfectant, and latex. My name was called. I went to the receptionist's window and was given a few forms to fill out. I silently wished that this process could be expedited in some way, 
when I looked down just in time to see that I was about to trip over someone's outstretched legs. Rudely outstretched, considering the size of the waiting room. Even though I didn't trip over his legs, the guy flinched as if I did, and he looked at me, like he's asking, what the fuck? I looked at him with an expression on my face that hopefully loudly said, fuck off. I somehow managed to make it back to my seat in one piece and began to fill out the paperwork. I remember the toothache was intense and it throbbed in sync with my seemingly perpetually budding headache. I swear to God, if it would just stop, I promise I will floss every fucking night. This is, of course, what I always tell myself. The few days leading up to that morning were fraught with aches and pains from a particularly painful cavity somewhere in the back of my mouth. The jabbing pain started on a random Friday afternoon and had only gotten worse over the weekend instead of silently fading into nothing, as was usually the case. As you can probably imagine, I was desperate to get the first dentist appointment still available for the following Monday morning at my longtime dentist's office. At this point, the pain had gone from a 4 to a 9. Luckily for me, someone had cancelled their appointment for Monday morning, opening a spot for me. I finished the paperwork and gave the still outstretched asshole a wide berth on the way to drop off the forms, and on the way back to my seat. I sat and breathed through my nose as the cold air from the nearly useless AC unit in the waiting room only served to aggravate the screaming nerve in my mouth. My name was called yet again, and I was led to the door that goes from the waiting room into the back offices. I looked at the faces of those still waiting, and saw that they were annoyed that someone that had just gotten there was already being seen, when they'd been waiting for who knows how long. But I didn't care. Let them stare. I needed it to stop as soon as possible. Just breathe. It's almost over now. Just get in the chair, and soon enough the wonderfully numbing anesthesia will ensure the pain is but a distant memory. After taking a few x-rays of the problem area, we went to an unoccupied room, and the dental aide set me up in the uncomfortable chair, placing a thin paper bib around my neck. As a side note, Do yourself a favor and never look at the bib on your way out after the dentist is done poking around in your mouth. You will see things that will haunt you in your nightmares, as I learned the hard way during my last appointment. I stared at my phone, pretending that a tooth in my mouth wasn't actively pulsing with a special kind of hell, the kind designed specifically for you so that it may cater to all your fears while also making sure every inch of your body feels the vibrations from each stab of the proverbial ice pick in your mouth, one that aims directly for your electric nerves. I couldn't concentrate on the latest celebrity gossip beaming from my phone, so I put it away and just stared up at the ceiling, trying to think about something else other than the pain. I felt a mixture of emotions at this point. A part of me was anxious to get my filling so the constant ache would subside and allow me to sleep at night. 
Another part of me was anxious because I've always hated the dentist. This is more than understandable, as I was cursed with a plethora of dental issues when I was a child, eventually beginning to associate the biannual trip to the dentist with soreness and pain. There always seemed to be something wrong, and there was always something that needed to be drilled. I once had to get a tooth pulled because I waited so long to see the dentist, out of fear of the pain, that by the time I forced myself to be seen, the tooth was so decayed the dentist decided it would be better to extract it rather than allow it to continue to rot and cause infections in my mouth. That was super fun and not painful. But did I learn my lesson and floss more? Well, my familiar situation should be answer enough. Eventually, my dentist walked into the room and greeted me with what I think was a less-than-sunny disposition and wasted no time with pleasantries. He got directly to business. So, what seems to be the problem? What brings you in today? I have the worst toothache ever somewhere in the back of my mouth, and it has not quit since Friday. <laughs> he removed his glasses and cleaned them with a felt handkerchief he produced from his lab coat breast pocket. Mm-hmm. Tell me the truth. Have you been flossing? I hate that question. When I remember... It's the neutral response that I always gave when asked about my dental hygiene. I mean, it, it's not like I'm gross or anything. I brush twice a day... But beyond that, my teeth only come to mind when they hurt. Well, let's see if that was enough. Let's take a look, shall we? He stuffed his hands into gloves and placed his mask on his face, and then turned on his headlamp. I moved into position almost too eagerly, my mouth agape, and rhythmically breathed through my nose. Hey, have you heard the one about the dentist of the year? What does the dentist of the year get? I gave him a blank, emotionless stare that hopefully communicated to him to hurry with the punchline and not be stingy with the anesthesia. Not much of a guesser, huh? Well, I'll just tell you. He gets a little plaque. Get it? Plaque? As in what we scrape off teeth for a living? <laughs> he chuckled harder, but I stayed silent. He saw my lack of reaction and tried to stop giggling at his own joke before he momentarily got tangled in the various hoses and cords that surrounded the station. He awkwardly resituated himself and cleared his throat. <laughs> well, anyway, let's begin. Out of the corner of my eye, I watched him assemble a small syringe from various parts, sealed in numerous packages. My anxiety began to swell when it became obvious that he was fumbling a little with the assembly process. I saw sweat begin to manifest on his exposed forehead, and his breathing seemed to quicken, and I realized he was nervous for whatever reason. Okay, here we go. I need you to relax and open your mouth as wide as possible. I breathed in deep and did as instructed. I felt quick little pinpricks of discomfort as the needle dove into various places in my mouth to quiet my screaming nerves. 
Once done, he allowed me to close my mouth for a bit, as we waited a few minutes for the anesthesia to numb my entire mouth. I always found the sensation amusing. It felt as though my lips and gums had inflated to extraordinary sizes. That's weird. I didn't think my whole mouth would have to go numb to fill one cavity. Well, anyway, the pain has stopped. Thank baby Jesus. I closed my eyes to focus off the discomfort and occasional twinges of pain. Hmm, looks like you have more than one cavity to take care of, but I'll try my hardest to make this quick. From what I can see now and from your x-rays, uh, looks like you have three. He smiled from beneath his mask and wiped sweat from his face with a towel. Looks like you need to kick the flossing up a notch, son. I nodded slightly to communicate that I understood. I began to think about how dark dentist visits must have been back in those days before the invention of anesthesia or similar numbing agents, most procedures teetering on the barbaric and inhumane. And then I thought how lucky I was to be alive in a time where such procedures could be endured with the aid of numbing agents. Suddenly, I began to feel groggy, like I was drifting away from myself in the situation. The sensation came swiftly and powerfully. Out of the blissful ignorance I was bathed in came the small yet distinct mumblings from behind the dentist's startlingly white facial mask. I couldn't make out what he was saying other than a few words here and there. The cloud of slumber that had enveloped me became denser, and it became difficult to keep my eyes open. Should a simple filling require intense general anesthesia? The last thing I saw before I went completely under was the look on the dentist's face. It was one of a man that was trying to decide whether or not to react to something terrible. Like when you witness an auto accident and feel the impulse to pull over and help however you can, but also the traffic behind you and the lack of time makes for a convincing argument to stay in the car and keep driving. That look scared me, but I couldn't really piece all these observations together. The fog had grown heavy, so I closed my eyes and dove deeper into my internal lake of solitude. Then all went dark. I couldn't really tell you how much time passed before I woke up. I still couldn't feel what was going on in my mouth, but I could hear and feel the drill and I could hear metal clanking against metal and the sound of the suction applicator. Only the sharp and most painful jabs seemed to reach my brain, but even those were manageable and barely registered in the misty peripheral dreamland that my mind swam in. What I could register was that my eyes were still closed, and for some inexplicable reason, I could not move. That was when his voice finally reached my dazed brain, and I could hear him mumbling to himself. It sounded as if he were alternating between trying to coach himself through the procedure and talking about his wife and repeatedly asking why she wouldn't just let him fix it. Why can't I move? 
What's happening? I could hear the frown on his face as snippets of the procedure reached me. But it was mostly dental jargon I could only guess the meaning of. When asked later, I could not tell the authorities exactly what he said. Up until that point, he was mostly mumbling to himself. But then, sharply, he spoke clearly and audibly. It was like finally finding the correct station on the radio. I realized that he thought I was still asleep when he stopped to address me. You know, it's good that you're getting these things taken care of as soon as possible. (sighs) Not like my wife, who liked to procrastinate till the last minute. Oh, she was the worst. (laughs) But, you know, I must admit I always loved her smile. Even with that small chip on one of her bottom front teeth that bothered me to no end. No matter how many times I asked, she never allowed me to fix it. She said it gave her character, and besides, it's not that noticeable, at least not to anyone that isn't a dentist, she would say. He said this last part with an edge to his voice. I imagined him using air quotes. And she was right, but you know, after years of looking at it, that damn tooth began to nag at me, and then it began to speak to me, which then began to anger me. It mocked me, it laughed at night while she slept, and it tortured me. Something like that would drive anyone crazy, right? Why wouldn't she just let me fix it? It would have taken no time to repair, and it would have looked like new, but no. Out of the question for Linda. I was suddenly very aware that he was speaking in the past tense. It seemed there was a sad ending to what I knew had been a long marriage. I remembered seeing pictures of her throughout my tenure here as a patient. It also made me nervous for some reason. But that's in the past, isn't it? She's gone, and I'm happier for it. It was a messy ending, but it was also inevitable. (laughs) Look at me, pouring my heart out to a kid. Ah, but I guess you didn't catch any of that, did you? I could feel him move closer to my face, the smell of whiskey on his breath. And besides, with these gone, they won't be able to identify her even if they ever found her. How could they? Anyway, she will never really be truly gone. Wait, what? I thought maybe I was confused for a bit because of the anesthesia and because I had been drifting in and out of what he was saying. But don't you worry, I finally fixed that chip. Police, don't move. We've got our guns trained on you, don't try anything stupid. Drop the weapon and step away from the boy. Back up with your hands behind your head. Do it now. I heard the dentist drop the object in his hand onto the linoleum floor and then scuffle away from me. I heard his hands land on the wall with a loud thud. The officers were on him in an instant, and after a small shuffling of bodies, I heard the locking of handcuffs. (laughs) But I'm not 
done! <laughs> he continued laughing as I heard the group shuffle out of the room while one officer began to state the dentist's Miranda rights. Another officer stuck around, and I heard him approach me. It's going to be okay, son. We'll get this fixed in no time. Do not panic. This statement, of course, only caused me to panic more, and I began to sweat and breathe hard. I just needed a cavity filled, for fuck's sake. I assume the appearance of sweat on my upper lip and forehead and the heavy breathing signaled to the officer that I was awake and conscious. I couldn't help but picture the goriest and most horrific situation inside my mouth. Is my tongue still attached? Are my teeth filed down to sharp points? Are my gums mangled and raw? What has he done to me? I frantically tried to piece together what he had been saying, but the drugs and his mumbling had made that difficult. Most of his words didn't connect in my mind, so their meaning was lost on me. Then, the lights went out again. I awoke, sometime later, alone in a hospital bed. The light was bright, and my head and mouth throbbed as the machines measured my heartbeat with glorious beeps. I'm alive! But now came the hard part. I began to carefully go over everything the dentist said that I could remember. And, with sudden realization dawning on me... I sat up quickly and rushed to the mirror, hanging on one of the walls. I would later learn from the police that they had, in fact, found the dentist's wife in a shallow grave near the home they shared together. They were able to convict the dentist for murder, using various security cameras to place him in the area after his wife was reported missing by her employer. He eventually pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. I spat out the gauze and opened my mouth wide. Dear God, he couldn't. He wouldn't. I pinched myself so that I would wake from this horrific nightmare. But the soreness of my arm and my mouth told me that this was real. The reflection in the mirror was horribly altered. My face was still there, but his wife's beautifully shaped, pearly whites had replaced my own teeth with one improvement. He had finally fixed the chipped tooth. I could make out where he fixed the chip with some white glossy material. The emergency dentist that had sutured my mouth probably didn't think to verify that the teeth in my mouth were my own. Who would? The dentist had finally done what he wanted so badly to do while his wife still breathed. And now, after getting rid of everything but her precious smile, his magnum opus sat perched beneath my dry and cracked lips. And all I could do was scream. 
Exploring abandoned buildings has become a regular pastime for the youth of today. Factories, malls, asylums, there's so much to discover. And plenty of near misses and narrow escapes for the thrill seeker. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jimmy Ferrer, we find ourselves in a location from which there may be no escape under the watchful eye of a tyrannical matriarch. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Aaron Lillis, Matthew Bradford, and Jimmy Ferrer. So take heed of the warning signs, the writings on the wall, and beware of the silence and what lurks behind the doors at Mother Maggie's. You don't understand the amount of effort and strain associated with serious rehabilitation until you experience it yourself. A journey to return to normal. Each step on this journey, though, is accompanied by sharp, persisting pain. Everything previously taken for granted is illuminated by a bright and unavoidable spotlight. Walking, sitting up in bed, having my own natural teeth. Hell, even just being able to sit up without help. All things I wish I could do like I did before. If you were to look at me in my current state, needing help from two people and various mechanisms to simply walk, you'd never imagine, but I was strong once. I considered myself to be in above average shape. Lifting was my favorite thing to do. That isn't the takeaway I want you to have. I just want to get it across that I considered myself to be a stronger guy. Now, at five feet, eight inches tall, I weigh a paltry 105 pounds. Before the incident, I weighed 195. I need you to know and deeply understand that it doesn't take a lot for you to get to where I am. In fact, my experience proves that it can only take one decision to change your life forever. In my case, it was something as simple as trespassing in what I assumed to be a vacant unit in a shopping center. What I did over the course of an hour changed my life. It only took one accidental visit to Mother Maggie's to destroy me almost entirely, body and soul. It's been six months since my visit, but I remember clearly as if it happened hours or minutes ago. Before all of it, whenever I could, I liked to walk around the city to take photos. If you know anything about larger cities, it's not uncommon for units to be vacant from time to time. What I used to do was go into these units and take photographs. Nothing professional, just experimenting with all my camera's settings reading tips online, and generally playing around. I messed with exposure times, painted with light, and made ghosts of myself, and so on. This came about because I got bored of the typical skyline or gym bro photos I had started to accumulate. Pets, food, and selfies, the usual fare for someone trying to have a relevant social media profile. It was one day, looking over my camera roll, that I had a burning desire to try absolutely anything to make me feel just a little less... Basic? Basic, however, is safe, as I would discover on my third outing. This one was in a multi-level strip mall with a unit empty on the second floor. It was on a hillside that overlooked a river. I felt like I could get some really cool shots here. The glass doors had a typical setup, lock and chain, paper covering the glass of the doors with notices reading, coming soon, melted. 
This was a local restaurant that did a variety of cheese dishes, grilled cheese, mac and cheese, and so on. The lockpick set I'd acquired had proved to be a fantastic asset. I fiddled around for a little bit and popped the lock open. I slid the chain off and headed in. What I expected, an open, empty area of a few hundred or thousand square feet, was not what I found. When I opened the door, I was greeted by a small area that looked like an entrance to a house. Imagine opening the front door of a restaurant and seeing an area no larger than a walk-in closet. Walls pastel blue with white trim, and a small porch light right above a door that would be more at home on the front of a house. That is what I was looking at. I was stunned, sure, but my curiosity far outweighed any concern that I had. I took some photos, because who would believe me, and walked up to the door. I stood in debate for a moment. My experience told me that this is not what I should be seeing here. And furthermore, my life up to then had held me to the principle that you don't just walk into someone's house. If this is what this was. I shook this off. It was a restaurant. One I'd been familiar with in the past, and while a strange gimmick, a gimmick is what it had to be. I turned the doorknob and heard the expected click. Honestly, had I knocked, maybe things would have turned out different. Maybe I would have knocked, no one would have answered, and I could have turned around and got the hell out of there. Maybe, if I wasn't so quick to disregard my learned manners, I would still be able to breathe without pain. And maybe, just maybe, if I'd followed the rules like I had the rest of my life, I wouldn't have had my spirit torn to pieces, destroyed so thoroughly, that after six months of rehabilitation, I still couldn't walk on my own and couldn't eat without searing pain tearing through every part of my jaw. I opened that door. A picture of fitness and good health, a confident, self-loving person. I stepped in, not knowing that that version of me would die within the confines of this place, and that something else would emerge, broken in every way. I was well aware of the evil in the world, but nothing I'd ever seen or heard could have prepared me for what I would experience. The entryway continued to reflect what you would expect of a home. A straight hallway with doors on either side that opened into what looked like a kitchen at the end. Stairs on my right, about 15 feet in. Everything had an 80s aesthetic. Floral wallpaper adorned all the walls. Bright blue patterned carpet ran all the way down the hall over a linoleum floor designed to look like wood. Hung above the doorway at the end of the hall was a set of thick white letters that read, Mother Maggie's Magic Kitchen. The last time I went to Melted, it had a completely different setup. Modern. Records hanging from the ceiling, gray paint, and more of a bar feel. This new look was completely odd, and I couldn't see how this would work as a restaurant at all. I walked down the hall into the kitchen, where I expected at least a bit of normalcy in regards to being a public eatery. But it just added to the strangeness of the place. Inside was a setup, not for a place of business, but for a residential kitchen. An old white stove with metal coils on top. Wooden cabinets. A fake marble laminated board over the counters with a metal sink that glaringly contrasted it. No dishwasher to be seen, and the fridge looked to be as old as me or older. My mind could not reconcile what I was seeing, and my skin started to crawl. My thoughts quickly transitioned from my usual thought processes when I entered vacant units to feeling like an intruder in someone's home. I turned nervously and started heading back towards the entrance, speed walking down the hallway to get out of here before I was noticed. But there was a serious problem. The side of the door I was standing on did not have a doorknob, 
door handle or anything. There was absolutely nothing that I could use to open this door. It was a solid wooden door on this side and nothing more. I could not accept the truth that this door would not offer an escape from this place. There was no exit for me there. I had no choice but to turn around and explore the rest of the house that I was most certainly not meant to be in. It was quiet here. My mind, in trying to adapt to this being a house, expected random noises. Water in the pipes, heating or air conditioning. The house settling, but not a sound. I couldn't even hear the sounds of the cars driving down the main road nearby. Even at night, I completely expect multitudes of people on the roads here. Nothing, though, but total and complete silence. This silence made my heart catch in my throat every time I took a step back down the hall. Since there was no other sound, anyone here could certainly hear each and every noise I was making. My first thought was to try the doors in the hallway. Maybe this place was set up purposely to make someone leave through another doorway. Like in some supermarkets to prevent theft. If the place was going to be a restaurant like the signage outside indicated, this made more sense. All the doors downstairs, however, were locked. To my horror, what I had to do now was completely obvious. I had to go upstairs. Every step I took upward caused a creak that was so loud to me in this blanket of silence that each step might as well have been a car crash. As I climbed the stairs, my anxiety followed suit. I started to sweat, and my hand slid down to the banister, forcing me to adjust my balance and walk up the center of the stairs. As I approached the top of the steps and focused on the doorway at the top, I saw more blocky white letters, this time reading, Mother Maggie loves her babies. The sign downstairs I could have easily accepted as a restaurant trying to celebrate its chef. This sign, though, it felt strange. While the words seemed innocent, they unsettled me. This sign, in combination with not being able to leave via the front door, made my mind run through the countless scenarios punctuated with the phrase, If I can't have you, no one will. I shook off this feeling and grew angry with myself. I was a very strong person. Even in a situation where an unstable person tried to hold me against my will, I was going to put up a fight. And nowhere in my mind could I imagine a situation where I didn't come out on top. The rest of my ascent was quick and confident. The landing at the top of the steps was small and had two doors, one directly in front of me and one to my right. The door to my right was painted a blue pastel color with familiar white blocky letters reading, Mother Maggie's Special Children. I sat there a long moment, trying to digest what was happening. None of this made sense, but my rage had far surpassed my confusion and fear. I didn't want to storm into a kid's room, though, so... I paused for a moment and looked at the door. Mother Maggie's new arrivals, decorated with a slew of miniature hearts, entirely around the words to make the shape of a larger heart. The door was painted the same pastel color. In the end, I turned the handle to the room on the right. I felt it would be more redeemable if I just scared children in there and could try to explain my situation. The handle turned, a loud clunk accompanying the latch bolt releasing the door. The door was made of metal. I heard a small gasp inside and I slowly opened the door, poking my head in. Hello? Listen, I got locked in here on accident and I'm just trying to get out. I stepped into the room and saw a typical setup for children. Small plastic house, kitchen, toys, and what looked like a toddler-aged boy who ran into the small plastic house. It's okay. I just want to leave. Tell me how and I'll be out of here in a jiffy. He turned to me and my breath caught in my throat. 
You shouldn't be here, mister. Mother Maggie doesn't like visitors. She'd do anything to protect her babies. The voice of a man speaking like a toddler responded. When he turned, I could see that he wasn't a toddler, but a man I would guess to be in his 40s. He wasn't a toddler, but a little person dressed like a toddler with a realistic wig that made his hair look like that of a three or four-year-old. I was absolutely gobsmacked and could only try to not lose my temper. Listen, dude, uh, coming in here was a mistake, but I'm just asking nicely for you to help me get out. Sorry I came into your place, but who else is here? The little man didn't answer me, and I walked over to the closet door and swung it open only to see a woman. Not unlike the man. She was a little person and dressed to look like a toddler. I laughed and turned around to the man. Sorry, I interrupted. Whatever you have going on, buddy. Help me out and just tell me how to leave. I'm not here to shame you. I came in by accident and... There is no way out. What the hell do you mean? That's when I heard the front door downstairs open and shut. Babies, Mother Maggie is home. I heard the call coming up the steps. I about had it and stomped out of the room into the landing. When I looked down the stairs, what I saw made me freeze in place. The figure was huge, about six foot eight. They had to be 440 pounds, but they were not heavy. They were built like a power lifter and enormous in every aspect. Someone who lived their life in the gym, maybe. To top this off, the figure was dressed like Julie Andrews from The Sound of Music. The novice dress she wore that looks like a blue and white striped apron style dress over a black long-sleeved blouse. Mother Maggie moved into the light, and I saw that she was indeed a huge, muscular woman. As she looked up the steps, she had a look of happiness that fell into a look of absolute rage. I knew that what was coming next was a fight for my life. She ran up the steps before I could even lift my arms to defend myself. Her outstretched hand wrapped around my skull and slammed me into the metal door behind me again and again and again until a warm, wet sensation ran down the back of my head. My body failed me, and darkness welcomed me as I fell unconscious. When I woke up, I was dressed in toddler clothing not unlike my neighbors in the next room. Because of how well the clothes fit me, I had to imagine that I was out for a while in order for them to be perfectly tailored. My room was set up fairly similarly to the first room I entered. Plastic appliances, a small plastic house I barely fit into, with a tiny princess bed inside. No toys, though. There was a small vanity with a stool. Above it, white blocky letters reading, Mother Maggie loves you. I think that sign would have made me angrier if my head wasn't pounding so fiercely. I squeezed out of the house and looked around. This was a room set up for a toddler, all the way down to the training potty in the corner of the room. There was a sink, but the knobs had been removed and only the faucet remained. Every so often, water would drip from it. I thought of pounding on the door and trying to yell for help, but a flashback of how easily I was overtaken and completely dominated helped me make the choice to approach this a bit smarter than just trying to muscle my way out. There were no windows. There was an AC vent, but it was so small there was no way I could fit through. I backed up against the wall as Mother Maggie stepped inside. I realized I may have even underestimated her height earlier. She was pushing seven foot. She had to duck as she came through the doorway. Mother Maggie's newest babies are always such trouble. 
What do you want from me? Her face fell again like I hit a switch, same as before. No, no. You're much too young to speak so well. She approached me. I ran around her and shot out of the door and almost threw myself down the steps. I could hear Mother Maggie's heavy footsteps behind me as I scrambled to think of a way out. I reached the bottom of the steps and looked to the front door, which was closed. I tried every knob in the hallway to no avail. I ran into the kitchen and looked for a knife or anything to defend myself. All the drawers I had the opportunity to try were also locked. I turned around to see Mother Maggie running at me. I screamed, but was quickly silenced from behind and slammed a mouth first into the countertop. The way I was slammed pushed multiple teeth up into my gums, the pain dazing me so much that I didn't feel the following blows. I was recovered enough, however, to feel when Mother Maggie stomped my feet, ankles, and shins into a mess of meat and bones. I wanted nothing more than to black out. I tried to punch, grab, bite, but nothing I did fazed her in the least. You will be a good boy for Mother Maggie! With that, she lifted me and slammed my head into the sink. Mother Maggie stuffed a towel into the drain turned on the water, then held my head down with one hand and both my wrists behind my back with the other. Every time Mother Maggie noticed me trying to hold my breath, she would apply more force to my head. I felt popping and cracking and let out a scream drowned out by the water. I gasped in pain and drew water into my lungs. I passed out soon after. I'm sure that after that incident, I was left alone in my room for days. My legs were a mess, which meant I had to crawl over to the vanity to collect a small teacup I had noticed before. I picked up the cup and crawled over to the sink to leave it under the dripping tap. The dripping would give me something to drink eventually. I broke down and used the training toilet. I couldn't stand up to pee in the sink, so this was my only choice. And I only knew the consequences that awaited me if I'd made a mess in this room. I'd only seen Mother Maggie twice, and both times I was emasculated and brutalized. So I expected that, if I did not behave exactly how she wanted, I was going to die. And honestly, with what was to come, sometimes I wish I had. I forced myself up onto the small stool and sat up as straight as I could. I wanted to cry so badly. I was in so much pain, but I wanted one visit to not result in a severe beating. So I sat up straight at my vanity, waiting for Mother Maggie. I refused to look in the mirror. In fact, I still do. It took all of my strength to stay sitting up straight, but in the end, she didn't come that day. She arrived the next day instead. My door creaked and popped open to reveal Mother Maggie with a smile on her face. I sat perfectly still, waiting for her to prompt a reaction. Well, don't you look proper today? Maybe you are a sweet boy. She approached me and I couldn't help but flinch as she picked me up and cradled me like a baby, rocking me back and forth. Are you hungry, little guy? I nodded. Oh, come now. A polite little boy like you can say, yes, Mother Maggie. I gulped. Uh, Yes, Mother Maggie. My heart caught in my throat as Mother Maggie unbuttoned her blouse and presented one huge breast. I couldn't stop myself from gagging. The skin around her nipple was covered in sores, abrasions, and bruises. The bruises looked to be in the shape of thick sausage fingers. Her nipple itself 
wide and fat and stubby, was red raw. A droplet of bright red blood perched on the tip, quivering, threatening to fall. It did, landing on my leg. I had a horrifying image of Mother Maggie trying forcibly to make herself lactate. And as she reached up to her own breast with one hand, I realized my imagination hadn't been running away with me. That was exactly what she intended to do. Mother Maggie began to squeeze her breast with a force that made me wince. Pain flashed across her face. It was the first and only moment of vulnerability I ever saw from the woman. She squeezed and squeezed and twisted and gripped so hard and aggressively that even despite my own pain, I felt sympathy with the agony it must be causing. Come on. Droplets of blood began to spill from her torn nipple, eventually becoming a trickle. Then, faintly, a hint of white crept in. She squeezed so hard that I thought her nails would rip through her flesh. A pitiful trickle of milk began to spill from her nipple down her breast, mingling with the traces of blood. Mother Maggie tried to push my head towards her nipple and I turned my head away. She grabbed my head and began to turn it towards her. Please, don't. Her face fell and my heart started to race. Oh, so my milk isn't good enough for you, you ungrateful little brat! With a roar, Mother Maggie stood lifting me above her head and slamming me onto the ground. I tried to catch myself, but the way I landed on my arm caused it to twist. I heard a clear crack in my forearm, and moments later, I felt it. I screamed, but was quickly interrupted by being thrown back into the air and slammed onto the ground, repeatedly, for what felt like an eternity. I didn't black out this time, just laid in my own blood, unable to do anything other than whimper. You will behave and give your mother Maggie the love and respect that she deserves. Then she left, quietly shutting the door behind her. I used my one good arm to crawl over to the sink and drink whatever water was there, then crawled into the house, fitting as much as myself onto the bed as I could. I wiped blood and tears from my eyes and cried until I passed out. Over time, I was able to figure out how to interact with Mother Maggie in a way that mitigated or even halted the violence entirely. No matter how battered I was, she treated me like a healthy young child so I had to be mindful of her expectations. At best, I was fed a single jar of baby food, if I gave Mother Maggie her way and let her breastfeed me with the tiny amount of milk she was able to force out. At worst, I would make her angry enough to beat me within an inch of my life, left with nothing to sustain myself but the teacup in the sink collecting drops of water. Slowly, the beatings came less frequently, and Mother Maggie began to care for me, clean me up and dress my wounds. She wouldn't talk about them in a way that acknowledged how I got them, but asked me questions as if she had no idea about the cause of my state. Are those kids at school bullying Mother Maggie's baby again? You have to be more careful on your bike, honey. Mother Maggie would be a mess without you. You should tell me if you fall on the stairs and hurt yourself. Mother Maggie's always here to patch you up. Even after most of my wounds healed, I could barely do anything but crawl. Any weight on my appendages was absolute agony. I had wasted away, and my entire arms were no thicker than my wrists. My legs healed so that below my knee was a mess of angles. It hurt to look at, 
It hurt even more to feel. Even without a clock, I learned when to expect Mother Maggie. Always Mother Maggie, never just Maggie. That's another lesson I learned the hard way. Where I was rewarded by my nose being broken so badly that the blood pooling in my face bubbled with each breath. It was when I finally looked in the vanity mirrors that I had an idea. I looked mutilated, sure, but I was so thin. The AC vent near the corner of the room was much too small for me to have entered when I arrived, but now, maybe I could. One day, I waited till Mother Maggie left and pried at the covering with all my strength. It popped off and I squeezed in with more than enough room to crawl. I kept pushing myself until I saw a new vent below me that opened into an empty unit. Next door. I was out of that hell house. Suddenly, I heard Mother Maggie screaming. She must have come back to check on me. My heart raced as I pushed open the vent in a panic, falling 15 feet onto my mangled legs, re-breaking bones. I heard heavy steps above, and I crawled as fast as I could towards a rear door with a push bar. And in spite of the agony, I dragged myself up to open it. Moonlight shone down on me. For the first time in who knows how long, I tasted fresh air. I crawled quickly towards a line of trees on the hill as I heard Mother Maggie's screams echo and grow louder. I dragged myself through rose bushes, the pain of the thorns tearing into my skin feeling like nothing compared to the adrenaline. The screams and footsteps grew louder, and I threw myself down the hill. My body ragdolled the entire way down, splashing into the flowing body of water below. It was up to fate now. Either Mother Maggie would catch me, I would drown, or I'd drift far enough away that someone would see me. The screaming stopped just as suddenly as it began. I was left in silence with the cool water lapping around my skin. In that moment, I couldn't bring myself to care how this turned out anymore. I was a broken man. The cold water was the most satisfying sensation I'd felt in a long time. So if I drowned then, I think that would have been okay. So I closed my eyes and let the stream take me. The doctors had informed me that I was trapped in that hell for almost two years. To my misfortune, that strip mall lost occupants, and after time was completely empty. Because of this, no one thought to check on these units. If you can name a bone, it was broken at some point during my ordeal. All my teeth were destroyed and needed to be removed. But I survived. I've been staying with my mother, who's been very accommodating to my recovery. I hope to reach normal someday, but... I don't count on it. Sometime after my discharge from the hospital, one of the detectives working my case came by to talk to me. Based on your description and fingerprint evidence, we have an idea on Maggie. Margaret was, is, I guess, a local character. The kind of person everyone on the force knows of. Picked up a bunch of times hanging around outside daycare centers, harassing mothers in the play parks. Never turned out to be anything sinister though. In fact, we all kind of felt bad for her. Her backstory's a little sad. Go on. She had some kind of hormonal imbalance and various genetic disorders that made her, well, the size she is. Right from when she was a little kid, Margaret would try to mother the other kids. My older brother went to elementary school with her, but her own mother, she was nutty, frankly used to tell everyone that Margaret would never be an adult woman because she was all wrong inside. So her Margaret would forever be her baby. 
And she took it to the extremes. Forced her to ride inside a stroller until she was around eight. And far too big for the custom monstrosity they'd made. And she'd made this poor girl dress like a toddler. Right up until the middle of high school. Frilly dresses. All that shit. Then one day the mom died. And Margaret's dad had long since fled the madhouse. And Margaret was left alone. Moved in with an aunt. Graduated high school. Disappeared for a bit. Then a few years later, we get regular calls about this giant woman hanging around outside schools. Turned out, all she wanted was to be a mom herself. But because of her size, you know, kids were scared of her. So were parents. I even picked her up a couple times myself. 12 or 13 years ago. Christ, she was so gentle, though. But from your description, it's got to be her. She used to call herself Mother Maggie, too. Well, the woman I met was certainly not gentle. But she had cared about me. In her own way. Yeah. Wild. She kind of disappeared a decade ago. And we'd all assumed she moved away or died. Christ knows what happened to turn her into... What you encountered. Oh. And it gets worse. We think the two other children you met are a couple who went missing from the area about six or so years ago. Just up and left. Their families filed missing person reports, of course. But they were adults. If they didn't want to be found, then they had that right. There was no signs of a crime. Six years? Christ. Had that small couple been with Mother Maggie that whole time? Hell, I didn't know if they'd still been alive by the time I escaped from that torture chamber. I never saw them after the first time only heard them. And that was only sometimes. And time had no meaning in that place. We've reopened that case, at least. Descriptions matched, and we found a few fingerprints at the scene that matched the husband. His prints were on record, thankfully. Finally, the detective informed me that they also found my camera at Mother Maggie's, but otherwise the place had been entirely abandoned. They found it in the center of the room I stayed. The detective wondered out loud how I survived given that my blood covered so much of the room that it might as well have been painted with it. I bid the detective farewell and sat in bed with my camera for a long time before powering it on. I flipped through all my old photos, reminiscing at who I used to be. That is, until I reached the end of my camera roll. A single new photo made me drop the camera immediately. What was it? My unconscious body, lying in a pool of my blood beneath a sign that read, Mother Maggie loves you. All I can hope is that she doesn't love me enough to come looking. Working the lines as a police dispatcher can be a scary job. You hear about the worst humanity has to offer, sometimes while it's happening. Even though it might seem like it's safe being trapped behind a desk on the other end, it can also mean you're helpless. And in this tale, shared with us by author Matthew Mojica, we meet a dispatcher on a call that seems like it requires urgent, direct action. 
performing this tale are Mick Wingert, Jesse Cornett, Jessica McAvoy, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, and Matthew Bradford. So stay on the line and listen closely. Something awry is going on with the transfer. Crime Beat by Ben Francis, staff writer. Updated 3.48 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday, October 29th, 2018. Local police dispatcher Jeff 34, has been charged with aggravated assault. The revealing 911 call was obtained by the West Pike News Sun and may shed light on what led up to the incident. Incident number 12-245812. 9.45 p.m. Newcastle, Delaware. Nine one one. What's your emergency? It's Falls County with a transfer. He's at West Pike. Young man, go ahead. I think we killed him. What happened, young man? Who who did you kill? Who else is there? It wasn't me, though. I mean, I mean, help me. Can you help me? Right. Uh, please, please verify your location, sir. Are, are you near West Pike? Yes. <laughs> What's your address? <laughs> I can. Okay. Okay. Just, just breathe. All right. Take a deep breath. <laughs> he just wanted friends. Why is this happening? Let's slow down and work our way through this. What's your name? Robbie. What's your last name? He never gave... Robbie, are you okay? Hey, Jim, I think this kid's being attacked. Do you have a location yet? No? Damn it. Look, look, help is on the way, Robbie. Robbie? Everything's fine. That's totally unnecessary. Robbie was just having a moment. Weren't you, Robbie? <laughs> this guy... Shush! Hello? Who's this? I'm Molly. I'm sorry about Robbie. He has a an active imagination. Boys, am I right? You get it. We didn't kill anyone. Okay, so no one is hurt? Did your brother have a bad dream? Oh, there's someone hurt, all right. <laughs> but he's not dead yet bad at this. Hurry up. What? Who's hurt? He doesn't want you to know. He made us a promise and you always keep a promise to someone you love. That's what daddy taught us. Honey, honey, where are your parents? Mama's dead in the ground. Dead in the ground, making no sounds. <laughs> Just kidding. Mama's out for groceries. Daddy's at work. Always at work. So I'm in charge. You need to finish. I'm in charge. Jesus, Molly, Robbie, what's going on? Who else is there? Are, are you being harmed? Damn it, Jim. Have we tracked a call yet? Almost. We need to help these kids. I, 
you there? Are you there? Robbie? What, what happened? Are you okay? I'm okay. I got the phone away from Molly. I'm in the bathroom. She's so mean. She's going to just let him die. His blood is everywhere. Whose blood? He told me not to say. I told him not to. I, I swear. Son, son, I believe you. I, I, I'm gonna need the address. I don't know. I think we live by the park with the old well. Maybe? We've only been here for a month. Okay, Windsor Park. Yeah, it's my favorite place. Me too. I take my son down to Windsor all the time. You can make wishes at the well. Did your parents take you there during the Harvest Festival last month? <laughs> I'm never going to see it again. I'm going to die. No, no, you aren't. I'm going to get you help. I just need a few more clues. Have you ever heard of Sherlock Holmes? The detective? Yes. I need you to be my detective. Okay. I, I can do that. Great, great. Now, I know the area well. Are you by Chester, near the high school? Open the door, Bobby. Do not open the door. Stay with me. Now, does your house have anything in the yard, like, like a swimming pool or toys? Stay out, Molly. I'm not scared of you. Dad said I don't have to listen to you. <laughs> Since when? If you don't let me in, I'm going to kill Mom. What's in the yard, Robbie? Uh, um, uh, well, I don't think... Don't do it! I'm getting the gun. There's a gun in the house? Yeah, it's Dad's. He thinks we don't know where the key is. We do. Robbie, what kind of gun? The big one. It's really loud. Robbie, can you exit the house? Yeah, the gun is in the garage. It's gonna take her a while. Run, Robbie. Get out and run to the park. Get to the well. I'll have an officer meet you there. Robbie! Oh, okay. <sighs> Robbie? I'm, I'm almost out. You're gonna be okay, Robbie. I'm being told that we have your location. Police are on the way. Thanks. I can see the street. Robbie! I'm Awesome Possum, just making my way to the well, you big dummy. <laughs> Psych, got ya. I think I'd do a pretty good Robbie. I'd ask him, but he's not awake right now. What did you do? He shouldn't have said he was scared. Lying is not nice. Wh what did you do? Shut up, Jim. I'm calm. You want to take this call? Oh, don't be so serious. I bet you both thought I was getting the gun for reals. But it's way easier to grab Daddy's bat from under the bed. Boys sure are dumb. Yeah, I think I can see his brain. Oh, crap. Who's that? Don't tell her I'm here, or she's dead. Shh. <laughs> Are you still up? What the hell? Whose phone is... Jim! No, I'm not getting off the call. What do you mean I need to sit down? Hello? Who is this? 
I'm with the West Pike County Police Jeff? Deborah? Oh my god. Get out of the house! Baby, you're scaring me. What's going on? Look, I'll explain later, but I need you to grab Devin and get out of the house. Police are seconds away. It's gonna be okay, but I need you to be careful. There might be someone else in the house. Move! Jesus, I'm moving, babe. Devin? Devin? His door's locked. Ah! Deborah! <laughs> there, there's blood coming from below his door. Devin! Devin! The door just opened from the inside. Wait! Please, please, just wait! Anybody could be in there! The cops are right outside! Stop! I'm getting our boy. Deborah! Get off me! I have to get home! Hi, Mom. Daddy. Who the hell are you? What have you done to my family? West Pike News' son has learned that officers entered the residence of Jeff and Deborah at 9.15 p.m. A baseball bat covered in blood was found in the kitchen. Blood tests were inconclusive. Devin's fingerprints were the only ones present on the bat. A small disposable phone was found by Deborah. Detectives were able to ascertain that the phone was purchased by Devin the night before. Deborah was found in the small bedroom on her knees, staring at her son in an unresponsive catatonic state. Deborah was hospitalized and remains in the care of Falls County Clinic. The lone 12-year-old child, Devin, was found on his bedroom floor with a serrated bread knife in his right hand. His face had been removed and he was attempting to remove the skin on his neck when he was restrained by officers and given emergency first aid. The victim's face has yet to be found. Blood loss was substantial and Devin had to be put into a medically induced coma. The victim's blood test came back clean for drugs and alcohol. No evidence was found of forced entry into the home. Neighborhood witnesses claim that Devon spent most of the day prior at Windsor Park by the old well. They claim he was by himself. One witness, a former classmate, claims he appeared to be talking to himself. Dispatcher Jeff assaulted and hospitalized fellow dispatcher Jim He's currently on bail awaiting trial. His benefits have been withheld. Jeff also filed a lawsuit against West Pike County Police, which is currently in litigation. Finally, the Windsor Park well was investigated, and two names were found to have been carved on the side of the well, presumably by a knife. The names are that of Molly and Robbie. You can't go home again. That's the famous saying, right? 
But many people do return to their hometowns, and sometimes they'd have been better off heeding that sentiment. And in this tale, shared with us by author B.A. Reese, we join a young woman heading home to an apparent ghost town. Performing this tale are Alexis Bristow, Atticus Jackson, and Jessica McAvoy. So look ahead to the future and try to forget the past, even though the past won't forget you. If you wallow in the events of what happened, you just might find yourself dragged down into the muck. As I finally reached the incline's peak, the rising morning sun illuminated before me the rubble that was once the prosperous town of Grey Valley. I shook off the insecurity that ran through me as a young woman traveling alone, reassuring myself that I would be in Daniel's company in only a few minutes. The trip to my birthplace had been uneventful, except when the bus driver stopped me as she dropped me off at a stop half a mile up the road. It had been a relaxing drive until then, the lush, barren countryside had lulled me into a shallow sleep for much of the seven-hour ride through the night. But when the driver halted me upon my exit, her words alarmed me. If you're heading to Grey Valley, I want you to take this. She held out a slip of paper. If anything goes wrong, call the number on it. Though I felt puzzled, I took it from her. I've dropped off many people here, but I never pick any of them back up again. If you want to leave Grey Valley, just remember one thing. Use a payphone. After that, the bus drove off. I mulled over her words as the mile walk took me up the hill and then down to the town beyond it. What was it that she thought would go wrong? And why would I want to use a payphone when my mobile still had good service? The town's deterioration that had been apparent from a distance only became clearer as I approached its outskirts. Grey Valley consisted of a half-dozen streets lined with small houses arranged around a city hall, church, and courthouse. The church was dilapidated. Its roof had caved in. A large clock attached to its steeple appeared permanently stuck at 12.15. Much of the front wall of the courthouse across the street had collapsed, leaving behind piles of bricks and cement rubble. In the distance beyond stood a rusted warehouse-like structure, out of which stuck four tall smokestacks. A fifth lay collapsed across the roof. Weeds and overgrowth covered its brittle base. A tall, broken wall that extended from the warehouse confirmed that I was examining the tattered remnants of the old processing plant. As I walked down the first residential street looking for my brother's address, I began to wonder how he had even survived here for the last year. The windows of the only grocery store I passed were firmly boarded up. It dawned on me that not only had I not encountered any cars along the road, but I had also not yet seen a single other person at all. I knew Grey Valley had recently experienced its second significant drop in population, but I hadn't expected it to have transformed into an outright ghost town. Daniel had described it in glowing terms to me growing up. We'd moved away when I was very young insisting that I someday come back to this wonderful little burrow. And here I was. And Grey Valley was nothing like my brother had described. I wasn't shocked. Though I still loved him, I had long given up putting much faith in his words. 
My warm memories of him, seven years my elder, teaching me how to read and tie my shoes, had drifted away with time to be replaced by the unpleasant reality of his recent life trajectory. In one of my dreams on the bus, his once healthy and strong body deteriorated before me until sickly red bumps covered his face until it melted away entirely. While I had been off attending college, Daniel's health had steadily declined. He got little sympathy from our dad because, in dad's view, Daniel's problems were entirely self-inflicted. I don't completely disagree. Drug addiction can involve moral failings, but opioids often come prescribed by credible doctors, and their abuse carries few of the stigmas that accompany the substances society has trained itself to see as more dangerous. As Daniel can attest, their addictive qualities can emerge forcefully and quickly. In Daniel's case, they cause his life to spiral out of control. He lost his job and his ability to pay rent. When he moved in with Dad, Dad forced him to attend an intervention program. This seemed to help at first, but Daniel's addiction reemerged. Then, one day, Daniel left. For the past few months, we had only heard from him twice through letters mailed without a return address. A week ago, I found a message on my phone from an unknown number. When I played it, I recognized Daniel's voice. It's once cheery timber, now accompanied by a gravelly roughness. Hey, sis, it's me. I know you haven't heard from me in a while. I miss you. I want you to come visit me. I know you don't have a car, but the Greyhound line stops close to here. I'm at 105 Patrick Street in Grey Valley, right where we grew up. If you can make it here in a week, I would love to see you. Please make sure to get here before Saturday afternoon. Come alone and, and don't tell Dad. Love you, as always. He didn't answer when I tried calling back. I made the trip because I love my brother and because I needed answers. I wanted to know that Daniel was safe and not about to die of an overdose. He had trusted me alone with this information and I wanted to be the best sister I could by living up to that trust. So I followed his instructions and booked bus tickets without informing Dad. Silence permeated the still air throughout the town. No birds chirped and no engines rumbled. As I passed a road leading to the church, I noticed an old, fully enclosed phone booth, the type that alter egos of superheroes would run into, across the street from it. A jagged dent marked the dirty glass that lined it. I checked my smartphone's map app, Realizing I had walked in the wrong direction, I doubled back. I passed the derelict general store again, but the boards that I remembered covering the windows were now absent. Looking inside, I saw a smiling man in an apron standing by a cash register, bundling up groceries for an elderly woman. I could hear the murmurs of friendly chit-chat between them, excited to have at least seen another person. I swung open the door. Inside, though... All I saw were empty aisles and piles of trash. The man and the woman were gone, as were the sounds of their voices. Hello? Where were they? When I closed the door, the building was back to how I had originally seen it, run down and shuttered. Something was obviously off about this empty town. Its ominous aura cast an inescapable sense of lonely desperation. 
kept hearing distant voices and footsteps, but I could never locate the people responsible for them. Spooked, I doubled my pace toward my destination on Patrick Street. The neglected front yards of the homes that lined it were full of weeds, overgrown grass, and, in one case, misshapen children's toys. Aside from a shadow I glimpsed moving inside one of the homes, everything seemed abandoned. Finally, I made it to 105. Before me stood a compact two-story cottage. I shuddered at its chipped paint and broken windows, and I gasped when a ghoulish face peered back at me through a gap in the glass. Sis! A moment later, Daniel hobbled out of the front door. He looked terrible. His face was sweaty, and his pupils were shrunken and constricted. He had clearly lost weight. I knew you'd come. You're just on time. Daniel, you look like you need to see a doctor. What happened? Are you sick? If your car is still operational, I can drive you to the nearest hospital. No. No, sis, just listen to me. It's all going to be okay. He took my hand and led me back to the street. Perplexed, I followed. This house. He turned to look at it again. You don't remember it at all, do you? I shook my head, worrying about Daniel's mental state. He seemed to be experiencing a breakdown. How long had he been like this? But I do, of course. This town, it was magnificent, a real beauty. I remember mom walking me to the church from here. I remember the night when she brought you back from the hospital. I picked you up and held you. It was so perfect. I wish you remembered living here too, but I know you were too young. It was true. I only knew mom from pictures. I left Gray Valley at age three, Daniel and Dad left with me, but not Mom. Sis, what if we could have that back? What if we could go back to a life before? Watch out! I jumped onto the lawn as an old car sped by. I thanked Daniel for warning me and remarked that I wasn't being careful as usual because I hadn't seen anyone else on the road until just now. I had several neighbors when I arrived, but... I've been almost all alone for months now, but I'm not alone today, and I'm not just referring to you being here, sis. I noticed that in the last few minutes, the whole street around us had become less post-apocalyptic. The lawns were somehow not as overgrown, and at the end of the street, a little girl now rode in circles on a tiny bicycle in the yard that had been littered with children's toys. Daniel took my hand again and started leading me down the road. What's going on? Nothing here makes any sense. We have to get to Main Street, fast. Why? The parade is almost there. What parade? Is that where everyone in this town had been? Or was my brother delusional? Daniel, we don't have time to watch the parade. You seem extremely sick. You aren't trying to withdraw cold turkey again, are you? Daniel ignored me and, letting go of my hand, walked off toward the town center with the church and the courthouse. In the distance ahead of him, I noticed that the factory was churning out black gas from five well-conditioned smokestacks, and the once-tattered wall extending from it now appeared intact. Not knowing what else to do, I ran after my brother. I knew you'd follow. 
Daniel, what's going on? We're almost there. The town's main intersection lay before us. A crowd of people lined the streets. Where had they come from? And why had I not seen them before? Daniel leaned against the side of the church, balancing himself enough against it to stand upright. I joined him there. We were a few yards behind the rows of people lining the street. Daniel's face seemed sickly and faintly green. I got the impression he was fighting nausea. There it is. He steadied himself enough to point. In the distance, on the far side of town, was a marching band, followed by a small array of decorated platforms. I've always wanted to see it. He took in a deep breath and now seemed more relaxed. We have a few minutes. I can answer your questions now, sis. I had many, but I was also frustrated that he had no questions for me. My brother used to be so affectionate, but now whatever was happening seemed to be all about him, even though I had traveled over 200 miles to get here. Mostly, I just want to know if you're okay. Do I look okay? Of course not. I'm miserable. Have you stopped using? No. I drive a few towns over to get what I need every couple weekends. But I ran out last night. Money, too. It's not fun running out, Laura. But it's gonna be alright. Soon. It's gonna be alright. Why do you say that? Nothing seemed alright. This was the worst case scenario. It's not just any parade. It's the 1994 Gray Valley Town Parade. This startled me. That's impossible. And not funny. Daniel didn't respond. The crowd cheered louder as the parade got closer. I noticed that the rubble across the street had disappeared. The courthouse now appeared undamaged. Its steps were lined with the happy faces of formerly dressed men and women. What do you know about the Great Muck Flood of 1994? He glanced at the clock above us. It was functioning now, and it read 1210. Don't ask me questions like that. I'd grown up hearing about it. It was one of the worst chemical dam collapses in history, and it happened in the middle of the Gray Valley Annual Parade. More deaths resulted from it than in Saltsville a few hours away. More deaths than in Caribou, British Columbia, or Mariana, Brazil. I didn't remember it, but it had forever impacted my life. Of course I know how Mom died. Daniel shook his head. You know when she died, but you don't really know how. It was painful, Laura. Drowning and disintegrating at the same time. It's a horrible thing. Shut up. Don't talk like that, Daniel. I don't want to think about what she went through. She was one of 34 deaths. But the number was originally only 30. Why do you think that is, sis? That's crazy. Don't be so defensive. It didn't directly impact you. You were unhurt, as were Dad and I, because we stayed in the second floor of our house. The waste was never high enough to reach us. But Mom... She wasn't so lucky. You want me to show you where she is? What the hell are you saying, Daniel? As far as I knew, what was left of her was six feet under in a graveyard on the other side of town. Something so terrible, so awful as what happened here in 1994, 
It... it leaves a mark. A mark? Agony like that doesn't always just disappear into time. It can make a stain that never goes away for those who died. I saw it when I arrived here. The way this town, on the anniversary of the disaster, slowly comes back to life throughout the morning. I hid from it in the second story of the home I grew up in, just like I did 30 years ago. And I saw, at 12.15, the disaster unfold again, all around me. Well, I'm not hiding anymore, sis. Not this time. The parade was almost upon us. I felt a deep tremble in the ground. At first, I thought that the marching band and the cars behind them were causing it. But this parade was far too small to cause tremors as significant as the ones I was feeling. We're gonna join this town, sis. We're gonna leave this world behind and get a second chance at the one that was taken from us. I watched two people do it last time. Over the past year, I've sensed them as part of this town. I've heard their voices in the distance. And here they are today, cheering for the parade. I started to tremble. What my brother was saying and what I was seeing, it wasn't possible. The events before me matched what happened that day. If I was stuck in a bizarre reenactment, it was a convincing one. But of course, no one would go to the middle of nowhere to reenact such a horrible disaster. Somehow, this had to be real. Which meant that we faced real danger. Daniel feebly reached out his arm and pointed across the street. And there she is, in the striped orange dress, waving. I instantly recognized her. Daniel and I both inherited her soft brown eyes and low cheekbones as I had learned from seeing her in pictures. I grew dizzy and nearly lost my balance as the rumblings inside and outside of me grew more intense. Now I was the one trying not to vomit. Around me, I noticed the concerned faces of people lining the streets as they noticed the tremors. My mother grabbed onto a street lamp. The band's music fell apart as the marchers started to stumble. I heard the loud echo of distant concrete crumbling and breaking apart. I knew what was happening, what the mild earthquake was doing to the poorly designed dam that contained the waste produced by the local mining industry. Daniel took my hand again, holding it tight. Be brave, sis. We can join them too. Soon everything will be different. I wanted you to be here with me. We can go through this together. Let me go! I yanked my hand away. In the distance, I saw the center of the concrete wall collapse as an endless stream of thick, red liquid rushed into the town. Within moments, a tsunami of acidic, toxic waste consumed the outskirts of Grey Valley. I turned to run. I knew what was going to happen. Maybe if I ran as fast as I could, I could save myself. But I knew that wouldn't work. Not with mere seconds before the waste swept me away. Daniel seemed to read my mind. Don't bother running. It's too late for that. Stay here with me, please. Then I remembered the phone booth. It was just across the street. If I was seeing it now and it had been intact in the present, then perhaps. Before I could get far, I felt Daniel grab me around the waist. 
No! You're supposed to be here with me! With your brother! I watched as the cascading wall of blood-red liquid engulfed the rear of the parade. People screamed and ran in a futile effort to save their lives. I turned to my brother, tears filling my eyes. He wasn't the man I thought he was. I hated him like I never had before. Let me go! I tried to pull his arms apart, but even in his weakened state, I couldn't muster the strength. I lowered my head and bit as hard as I could into him. But even as I felt blood on my teeth, he refused to let me go. The band was gone now, and the waste was only a block away from engulfing us. Daniel! I stopped fighting him. He looked up at me, his expression at first one of anger, but then one of sorrow. Please. He looked down. My own sister, abandoning me too. He released me. I didn't bother responding to his pathetic self-pity. Instead, I sprinted through the crowd of panicked people and hopped into the enclosed phone booth. The moment I shut the door, liquid swept through the area where I had been standing. I felt a sharp burn in my foot as the red acid ran across the ground. The bottom of the booth was not perfectly sealed. I grabbed the top of the heavy mechanism holding the phone and pulled my feet off the ground. Luckily, it supported my weight and allowed my feet to dangle a few inches above the surface. I panicked as the water level beneath me slowly rose as more of the crimson gunk leaked inside. I looked out the clear glass window and saw that my booth was immersed almost to its top in a sea of the vile substance. The body of the man I had seen working at the general store bumped against the booth. His apron and the skin underneath it had begun to disintegrate in the water, leaving behind a disgusting, fleshy residue. Then a second figure, grotesquely deformed, slammed into the glass before me damaging it but not breaking it. I glimpsed a striped orange dress on its boiling pink body and shut my eyes, not opening them again until the nightmarish noises around me had died down. The thunderous sound of swirling liquid reached a fever pitch and then died down as the water level finally decreased. When I opened my eyes, I found myself in total silence in the middle of an empty ghost town once again. Everything looked as it had when I arrived that morning. When I dropped to the ground, I landed on old concrete rather than acidic liquid. Yet, patches of my shoes and socks had been eaten away, and the bottom of my feet stung with each step. Daniel was gone. I dialed the number I had been given. The bus driver told me she would pick me up as soon as she could get there. Hysterically, I began to explain what I had witnessed, but... She cut me off and just told me to wait. I gave her the only address I could think of. I ran past a historical marker commemorating the 35 victims of the tragedy and headed to our old family home. When I arrived, it at first looked abandoned. But as I approached, I saw movement within the windows lining the kitchen. Peering in, I witnessed a young woman with soft brown eyes and low cheekbones carrying a tray of food to a blissful boy. My heart fluttered as I pushed open the front door and ran to the kitchen, but the kitchen was unoccupied. All I found in it was a pile of empty pill bottles on a dusty counter.
In our final tale, we join a young man begrudgingly accompanying his mother to a graveyard. His fallen brother lies there, a soldier. But this young man has no time for the dead. He's hot, bored, and excited about tonight's party. And isn't it such a waste, all the gifts people bring to leave on graves that are only going to be tossed away by the cemetery workers? But in this tale, shared with us by author R.R. Trevino, we learn that it doesn't pay to disrespect the dead. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Mary Murphy, Nicole Goodnight, Matthew Bradford, Jessica McAvoy, and Dan Zapula. So bow your head and pay your respect. Don't take what isn't yours from the Vet Cemetery. My life ceased being my own on Veterans Day 2017. It started with my mother rousing me at the crack of dawn and dragging me from my bed to the car so that we could stick to our annual commitment of visiting Rick, her dead brother, who was buried at the local veterans cemetery. The fact that I had never met Uncle Rick due to him bleeding out in a Vietnamese jungle decades before I was even born wasn't justification enough for her to exclude me from the tradition. The gates to the cemetery didn't open until 7 a.m., but there we were, waiting diligently near the front of a long line of cars. Almost time. So go on and start getting up. I sat up on my seat and looked out on the rolling hills of granite headstones, spaced at perfect intervals. I turned my attention to the passengers in the other cars, all somberly waiting to pay their respects. Still don't see why we have to wake up so early. It's not like there's going to be a line at his grave. Mom turned to me and glared. Please, please don't be an asshole right now. Not today. I rolled my eyes back to the cemetery. The grounds were immaculate. Not a wilted bouquet, mildewed stuffed animal, or spoiled offering of any kind to be found. That was because each Friday evening, after the last visitor had departed, the groundskeeper would sweep the sections and round up anything that wasn't bolted down or buried. Didn't matter what it was, how sentimental or expensive, every item got the same treatment. Straight into the trash bin. Because of this rule, I thought it was idiotic to bring anything in the first place. Waste of money. And besides, the recipient of the gift was dead and therefore unable to appreciate it. There was a lot of religion in my mom. The unwavering belief of an afterlife and all that. But those messages never resonated with me. I thought then that once a person was dead, he was dead, lights out, returned to the earth from which he sprang. The groundskeeper's truck motored to the front gate. The driver's side door opened and out he stepped. Though I had seen him a number of times before, his appearance still shocked me. Aged north of 80, he looked sickly, like someone who should be tucked away in his deathbed, not punching a clock. Stringy gray hair swung in knotted ropes over a deeply grooved, sunken face. Bloodshot eyes too close together perched over a bulbous nose swollen and red. But it was his skin, which hung in heavy folds off long, atrophied muscles that drew my attention the most as he shuffled toward the wrought iron fence, fussing with a heavy key ring. It was nearly translucent, 
The network of unsightly black veins that carried sludgy blood to barely functioning organs was visible to all who dared look at him. Once inside the gate, we turned at the first intersection and chugged along down the road that would eventually deliver us to the section where Uncle Rick was buried. My thoughts turned back to all the waste the cemetery generated. For example, several years ago, I saw a family leave a stack of new board games at a headstone. I was tempted to steal them. Maybe Mom and I could have played them together, bridging the gap that had started to form between us after Dad left. But she never would have allowed that. Better they be relegated to the trash can, along with the wilted flowers, stick flags, and tiny plastic windmills. There was this other time I saw a fat woman leave behind an oil painting of her dead husband. We parked along the curb of Section C, Lot 3, which backed up to a tree-lined pathway that encircled a small pond. This particular section was considered special. Only those killed in combat could be here. No more than 15 minutes, right? A little respect, please? These men died for your freedom and... Yada, yada, yada. I stepped out of the car and watched as the other folks flooded the section. The horde splintered off as each family, carrying flowers or some other offering, adjusted direction toward the plot of its destination. There, they gathered and crouched at the headstones to perform their little rituals. I heard quiet sobs and loud guffaws, saw wide smiles and quivering lips. The entire range of emotions associated with human beings and states of grief was on display. A few would even touch the headstones, but never for too long, almost as if death was catching. I was strangely unmoved by it all. It was hot. I was tired. I just wanted to dump the bouquet of flowers we brought and be back home in the air conditioning. My mother fell in next to me, mascara already running. I took the flowers and stepped over the curb onto the well-manicured grass. Uncle Rick's gravesite was located on the second-to-last row, off to the right of where we parked. The quickest way there was a diagonal path, but as soon as I stepped out of the aisle onto the grass laid out in front of a headstone, I heard my mother's voice. Keep to the lanes, please. Cheese, Caleb. How many times? We arrived at Uncle Rick's headstone. The inscription read, Richard Allen Clark, 1939 to 1970. Corporal, United States Marine Corps, Vietnam. Loving son and brother. Fat droplets of mascara streamed down my mother's cheeks. She dabbed at them with a tissue. Hey, Ricky. She caressed the headstone's crown. I considered reaching for her hand, holding it tight in her time of need, but then she stuffed them both into her pockets, so I crouched and placed the flowers rather precariously against the granite slab. Don't just set them down like that. She bent over and snatched them from the ground. They'll fall over the second we leave. Here, hold them while I get the shovel. As she rummaged through her purse, searching for the small plastic gardening spade she always brought to dig a divot in the grass, my gaze drifted along the last row of headstones, where I spotted a full bottle of Maker's Mark leaned against the base of one. The red wax that sealed the bottle and hardened into messy rivulets down the side of the glass was undisturbed. Here it is. Mom pulled the tool out of her purse. I swapped the flowers for the spade, bent down, dug out a little hole, and jabbed in the stems of the bouquet. 
We stood there in the near silence of her sniffling and thought of different things. Her, of memories of her brother. Me, of that bottle of Maker's Mark. Had someone always brought and left it there, year after year, and I failed to notice until now? If so, funny how we notice the things in the world that relate to our place in it. The stack of board games when I was much younger, the bottle of booze as I neared the end of high school. The headstone it was gifted to was close enough to read the inscription. Marvin Corey Jones. 1934 to 1970. Captain, U.S. Marine Corps, Vietnam, Silver Star. Was the bottle some kind of trick? I scanned the vicinity to see if anybody else had noticed it, or me looking at it. That's when I saw the groundskeeper standing in the shade of a tree, glaring at me as he puffed away at a cigarette. He was captain of your Uncle Rick's unit in Vietnam. Mom was pointing out Captain Jones's headstone. I was so transfixed on the groundskeeper, the sudden sound of her voice made my heart jig. She continued as I looked her way. I met him once, between their first and second deployments. To be honest, he scared me. Real tough guy. Imposing. Didn't talk much. But I know your Uncle Rick looked up to him. Worshipped him, even. They all did. Couldn't save Rick that day, but he did save a lot of them before he got shot. I glanced back to where the groundskeeper stood, but he was no longer there. I pointed out the bottle. What's up with that? People pay their respects in different ways. Come on, let's get out of this sun. I slid back into bed upon returning home, but sleep proved to be elusive. Imagery of the groundskeeper and his constellations of black veins were indelible on the sides of my eyelids. I played video games and jerked off to pass the time, both activities done half-heartedly. Night brought with it a chill and a text from Shay, a friend who I'd been crushing on lately. Molly, our other friend, was holding a gathering at her house, and now Shay was parked outside wanting to drive me there. I pulled on a hoodie, split-styled my hair, and headed downstairs. My mom was planted on the couch in her nightgown watching a movie. Going out with Shay. Be home by midnight. She didn't bother to peel her eyes from the screen. If I'm asleep by then, don't wake me, or I'll be up all night. Yeah. Then I strode outside and climbed into Shay's hatchback. Shay's style bucked trends, which I loved. She mixed the flat build fitted, cocked to the side, over short dyed hair, with heavy necklaces of tortoise stones that hung loosely over a shredded sweatshirt. One sleeve was scrunched up to her elbow, revealing the beginnings of what would become a full ink sleeve. We drove across town and parked along the curb in front of Molly's house, the largest on the street of expensive homes. It sat on a corner lot and had trumpet vines crawling up all sides of its two-story brick facade. Shay reached over my lap and fished a preloaded glass one-hitter out of the glove compartment. Last of my shit. She sparked the end of the pipe with a lighter. The weed crackled as she sucked the smoke into her lungs and held it there. She turned to me, beckoning me closer with a flick of the head. I leaned in, cupped my hands around my mouth 
our lips nearly touching, and received the shotgun blast of smoke. We parted and I exhaled the secondhand smoke out the cracked window. We sat there for a moment, looking out onto the dark street beyond the windshield, allowing the THC to invade our bloodstream. I considered turning back towards Shane making a move, but decided to wait. The night ahead being full of possibilities. Shaping up to be a wild night. The five of us, me, Shay, Jack, Travis, and Molly, stood in a circle around the kitchen table, looking down at a mismatched collection of warm beers, five in total, some in cans, others bottled, each a different brand, all leftovers from Molly's last party. We could head to Quickie Mart, see if somebody will buy us a case. Nah, shit doesn't work anymore. I think I'm just going to go home and chill. Netflix it up. Things were looking grim. The image of the Maker's Mark bottle flashed in my head, but was quickly overtaken by the memory of the groundskeeper and the look. Now the warning he gave me. Rationalizing the cemetery was long closed now, and the groundskeeper had gone home for the night. I opened my mouth and spoke words I would soon regret. I know where we could get a bottle of something good. Every head snapped in my direction, so I told them what I'd seen. Molly appeared uneasy at the idea, but Shay looked intrigued. Jack and Travis, of course, were on board. I'll drive. Jack jingled his car keys. The girls opted not to come, though Shay left me with a delightful smile. Hurry back. Jack, Travis, and I stood against the tall, spear-top metal fence that ran the perimeter of the cemetery grounds, which was now littered with flowers, trinkets, and other mementos left behind by the grief-stricken. The headstones exposed to the night sky were lit eerily, the granite mingling with the moonlight to give off an ethereal shimmer, like gleaming bits of perfectly carved bone. The shaded sections, and those on the opposite side of the pathway, were cloaked behind a wall of darkness. Being teenage boys on a mission to get booze for girls, we acted unfazed by it all. But nothing could have been further from the truth. The fear was palpable, with a weight to it, something that could be measured. It pinched into our shoulders, sat on our chests, hung from our necks like metal spheres chained to medieval dungeon collars. It's back here through the trees, on the other side. We'll keep watch. You're not coming? Well, it's your idea, so you go get it. Travis. I turned my attention his way, but Travis just looked down and kicked at gravel. I can't believe this shit. I scanned the grounds one final time for any sign of the groundskeeper, but there was no evidence of the living. One of you pussies give me a fucking boost then. Travis made a basket with his hands. I stepped into it and was lifted up and over the top, taking care not to puncture any organs on the speared tips. I eased myself down on the other side, pulled my hoodie over my head and ventured out into the grounds. I was utterly exposed moving through the first section. It was possible to shorten the distance by cutting a path through the section, but feeling more superstitious now that night had fallen, I stuck to the lanes and avoided stepping on any of the graves. The sight of a dachshund, sitting obediently at the base of a headstone, froze me in my steps. 
Last thing I needed was a barking dog to alert the world to my trespassing on sacred ground. I stood there and watched. When it didn't move for a full minute, I realized the dog was stuffed, placed there to be with its former owner. At least for another week, before it too would meet the fate of the trash bin. I started moving again and finally reached tree cover. The manor of the trees rose up on both sides of the pathway, their wild branches hanging evenly over the top. Made me feel like I was indoors somewhere, navigating a dark corridor. Luckily, the peals of moonlight falling through the small gaps in the canopy provided adequate illumination for me to keep moving forward until the path could deliver me to the other side. I was within 50 yards of my destination when I first heard the music. Faint at first, like notes skipping on a breeze. Confused, I checked my phone, thinking perhaps a playlist was inadvertently triggered, but it was locked and silent. There were unmistakable sounds on an electric guitar, verging on distortion, accompanied by blues-soaked vocals. Classic rock sound. Hendrix sounded like. I stood there very still and listened. Definitely Hendrix. All along the watchtower was the sound. It was at that moment I should have turned back, slapped the proverbial abort button so hard that it broke off the control panel. Instead, I crept forward, the music getting louder with each step, until I arrived at the break in the trees and looked out on the entirety of Section C, Lot 3. I took note of the maintenance shack, its windows dark across the section and off the road. I figured the music must be coming from there, but strangely it seemed much closer, as if it was being piped into my head via earbuds. I oriented myself to what I believed to be Captain Jones's headstone, though I couldn't be sure since the epitaphs were facing the other direction. The music stopped abruptly the moment I stepped off the pavement onto the grass. Strange. I checked again the dark windows of the maintenance shack, but saw nothing. Too close to hesitate any longer, I ran as fast as I could, straight to what I believed to be Captain Jones's headstone, trampling over each grave caught in my path. I guessed correctly and saw that the bottle was still there, but now it was only half full. I picked it up for inspection, noting that the wax seal had not been broken or disturbed in any way. I looked back to see the groundskeeper hobbling out of the maintenance shack. Two brilliant beams of light, which I assumed were high-powered flashlights, flooded from his position and momentarily blinded me. I spun into the cover of a tree, back to the bark. As my vision slowly returned, I watched as the beams cleaved through the darkness around me. The beams were strangely in sync, and the distance between them never changed, no matter which direction they pointed. Having to find out the reason for such a strange phenomenon, I waited until they danced far enough away, and I peeked out from behind the cover. Only then did I see the horrible truth. The beams were shooting from the groundskeeper's eyes. He detected my movement and swung his eye lights. I bolted from my position and sprinted for the pathway. I could feel the heat of them on my back as I rounded the trees, until finally I felt the hard pavement beneath my feet. The next two minutes were a blur. I crashed through bushes, hurtled headstones, and dodged trees. When the perimeter fence came into view, I was relieved to see that Jack and Travis had not left me. Start the car! Jack must have seen the terror in my eyes because he ran straight to the car and turned the ignition. My forward momentum sent me crashing into the fence. Travis watched, horrified, as I leapt up and power-gripped the bars. I dangled there for a moment, feet struggling to find purchase on the slick metal. 
Eventually, I found a foothold and scurried up over the fence. In my state of panic, rather than easing myself down as I had done earlier, I jumped. The crack of my ankle was audible as I stumbled to the ground. I reached for it with both hands, the searing pain nearly unbearable. Travis helped me to my feet and guided me into Jack's car. The tires kicked up gravel as it carried us away from there. Travis turned to me from the passenger seat. Is it broken? Give me some light. Travis fumbled his cell phone out and directed the flashlight beam at my leg. I carefully removed my shoe and sock, sucking air through clenched teeth in response to the sharp pain. There was a slight discoloration and it was beginning to swell, but I wasn't convinced it was broken. I think I just need ice. What the fuck happened back there? I... There was this music, and then... The groundskeeper. He... He had lights... In his eyes. Silence hung in the air, as Jack and Travis exchanged glances. Then they started to laugh. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. We, We believe you. You smoked some of Shay's shit, didn't you? Yeah, just a shotgun. Guess she didn't mention she laces her shit then. I sat there, stunned. The high just felt like an average high, nothing special. But if that weed was laced, it would explain a lot. If it wasn't, I was either losing my mind or... There exist things in this world worse than any nightmare. I remember the bottle in my hoodie pocket... If Jack and Travis could see that it was only half full without any evidence that it had been opened, then that would settle the matter. Explain this, then. I slid the bottle into the light. Right away, I saw that it was back to being full again. I know what you need. I know what we all need. Travis took the bottle, located the paper tag curled beneath the wax and peeled it away, revealing the twist cap beneath. He took the first pull and then passed it back to me. I sniffed at the liquid inside, then tossed it back. The liquor was smooth going down. I passed the bottle to Jack and he took a pull. I leaned back into my seat as an instant warmth blossomed in my belly and spread throughout my body. The pain in my ankle subsided, leaving only a vague throbbing. Word of the party must have spread because now a half dozen cars were parked in front of Molly's. Jack found an open spot and parked. Travis provided me a shoulder to lean on as I hobbled toward the front door. Jack was kind enough to carry the bottle, which he displayed victoriously to the dozen people spread around in the living room, where the rap music thumped from speakers and hands plucked beers from a case of Pabst, apparently a contribution from one of the newcomers. Shay's eyes lit up at the sight of the bottle. She sprung from the couch and approached us. You've really got it. I snatched the bottle from Jack's hands. I got it. He drove. Jack's eyes sharpened into daggers, but I didn't care. I turned to Shay, stone-faced. We need to talk. I took her firmly by the arm and led her into the hallway. She noticed my limp. What happened? I didn't answer and gently spun her so that she faced me. What was in that bud? 
and don't lie. She cocked her head, confused. Nothing. Just weed and not even very good. I studied her face for the slightest hint of deception, but I saw none. What I did see there was a growing fear. A fear of me. I released her arm. I'm sorry. It's been a weird night. Um, can you drive me home? I need to sleep and get off of this ankle. She reached out and wrapped my hand into hers. Don't go yet. Her eyes were hypnotic, beckoning. The five originals squirreled ourselves away from the others in Molly's dad's movie room, which featured a plush leather couch, an 80-inch wall-mounted 4K screen, and wall shelving loaded with an impressive collection of Blu-ray titles. Molly had been kind enough to fetch me a bag of ice, an ace bandage, and an old pair of crutches she found tucked away in a closet. I held the bag of ice over my wrapped ankle as Jack tossed off five shot glasses. A toast. Jack held up a shot glass. The rest of us followed his lead. To Caleb, for being a teenage grave robber. <laughs> Everyone except me laughed, then threw back their shots. I still held my full shot glass. No, to Jack, for being a little bitch who profits off the hard work of others. May that trend continue the rest of your life. Not pausing for reactions, I slammed back my shot. Fuck you, dude. But I ignored him and refilled all five shot glasses. One by one, I knocked them back. Take the bottle. I'm just going to chill in here and watch a movie. Jack snatched the bottle, now half full, and stormed out. Travis and Molly followed, but Shay lingered. You gonna be alright? If you stay here and watch a movie with me. She hesitated, and I knew then that I'd lost her. But the party's out there. I'll check on you later. The hope died on my face. Don't bother. Lock the door behind you. She turned, locked the door from the inside, and departed the room. I struggled to my feet and perused the lowest shelf of discs. Finding one I liked, I inserted it into the player, hit play, and sank back into the couch. Before the opening credits were done rolling, my eyelids were flickering. The six successive shots had done the trick, and I was asleep within minutes. I dreamt of the groundskeeper and his eye lights. The beams cut through infinite darkness until they found me, exposed with nowhere to hide. I screamed as the temporary blindness set in. The room was filled with bright light when I awoke. It took me a few seconds to realize the light was pouring in from a street-facing window. I struggled off the couch for a look and saw a car parking along the curb. A few drunken teenagers spilled out and staggered towards Molly's front door. I realized then that the light had come from the car's headlights as it turned onto Molly's street. I breathed a sigh of relief, and as the fear washed away, 
the hangover set in. A wrecking ball knocked about in my head. My tongue was a strip of sandpaper. My bladder burned. I needed to piss and drink a full gallon of water. Neither option available to me in this room. I'd have to brave the party outside the door, which, judging by the noise, had grown considerably. Through the window, I noticed a person standing in the front yard of a house across the street. He was difficult to see, loitering just beyond the reach of a street lamp light. From what I could make out, the person was tall and built, and he wore one of those short-billed military dress caps that sat tall on his head. At first, I didn't think it too strange. I'd seen plenty of hipsters at school sport similar hats. He could also be a ROTC cadet coming from a function, and had opted not to change out before heading to the party. He must be drunk, I thought, and had wound up at the yard of the wrong house. A passing car obscured my view, and when I looked back, he was gone. I clumsily positioned the crutches beneath my armpits and hobbled to the door, which opened on a dark hallway. To the left was the party, the ruckus of which made my headache even worse. Luckily, I remembered the downstairs bedroom to the right and its ensuite bathroom. I headed that direction, and as I inched closer to the door, I heard the unmistakable sounds of sex. This was not unexpected. That room had been unofficially christened the hookup spot during a prior party. Normally, I would have turned back, given the couple their privacy. But seeing as I was about to piss my pants, I barged in. I kept my head down as I moved through the room, trying my best not to look directly at the forms of pinkish flesh gyrating against each other on top of the bed. I navigated my way over the piles of clothes, his and hers, strewn about the hardwood, and only stopped when I saw the Maker's Mark bottle resting atop a nightstand. It was full again. Are you just gonna stand there like a gimpy perv or what? I turned and saw Jack's face. Shay was beneath him desperately trying to wriggle the blanket over their exposed bodies. For a moment, I thought that Jack had cornered her, put her in a position she didn't want to be in. When she refused to meet my eyes, I understood she was exactly where she wanted to be. Angrily, I snatched the bottle, worked my way into the bathroom, and emptied my bladder. I found my reflection in the mirror. It was neither angry nor sad, just blank. I flushed, scooped several handfuls of water from the tap into my mouth then hurried back to the hallway, closing the door behind me. It was an awkward juggling act trying to chug from the bottle while crutching my way forward, but by the time I reached the living room, I'd managed to get down a good third of its contents. The drunken crowd flickered and undulated like a school of fish, rolling to fill any blank space the moment one appeared. A thousand conversations happening at once, each competing with the incessant thumping from the stereo speakers. Roughly half the faces I recognized, the others must have been from neighboring high schools. When a party grew large enough, school exclusivity went out the window, whether the house owner approved of it or not. In this particular case, Molly seemed not to care. I found her flailing in the corner, showing off her dance moves to the ogling male faces that encircled her. I glimpsed Travis through the back window, gathered around a keg, taking turns on a beer bong. Neither scene appealed to me, but I didn't want to return to the movie room just to sit there with my tortured thoughts. Some drunk people watching would do some good in clearing my head of the images of Jack and Shay. Plus, I needed to take the weight off my ankle. I spotted a small opening on a couch and moved that way. As I pinballed my way through the crowd, I noticed two older guys huddled along the perimeter. 
Their faces were manlier than those surrounding them, clean-shaven and angular, with pronounced jawlines. Like the figure I saw earlier, they too wore service dress caps, and had pressed uniforms to match, adorned with racks of service ribbons and shooting medals that shimmered upon breast pockets. Must be ROTC students from a different school. I found the couch and plopped down. I drank, and drank as the faces of the crowd were replaced by more faces. Eventually I passed out. The sound of Jimmy's warped rendition of the Star-Spangled Banners filled my ears before my eyes opened to a dark room. I felt around for the bottle, but it was missing, carried off by some opportunist. I looked around. The party ended long ago, and all that remained was a metric ton of red Solo cups and beer cans, which littered every square inch of tabletop surface. I wasn't alone. Molly, her face pressed into the cushions, was next to me on the couch. Travis was asleep in a dining chair his face flush with the kitchen table. I was sober now and desperately wanted to go home. Struggling to my feet, bones popping and crying out, I headed for the guest bedroom to make Shay drive me home. I'd moved past her betrayal and would now prey upon her guilt. Something was strange in the way my body felt as I lumbered through the dark house. Instead of the pain being contained in my ankle, it was now everywhere. My movements were rigid, each step a struggle. They were still there, Jack and Shay, lying nude beneath a twist of sheets. I pulled back the blanket that covered their faces and reeled from the horror. Their bodies were fused together, locked in an eternal coital embrace by skin that seemed to have melted then solidified at every point of contact. Mouths, noses, chests, groins. If they did struggle when the hex had been first put on them, it was a fight that they lost most likely suffocating after being forced to inhale what the other was exhaling. I stumbled back, mouth agape, my lungs, which already felt strange and heavy, struggling to grasp air. I fished myself from my pocket, but it was dead. I tried concocting a plan of escape or rescue, but the deafening music drowned out all thought. I hurried to the stereo, but found that it was powered off. Yet the music, originating from the same ungodly realm it had at the cemetery, continued. Molly was closest, so I went to her first. I shook her by the arms. Her skin was cold, clammy. The horror building, I slowly flipped her over. Where the openings of her eyes, nose and mouth should have been, were sheathed by thin, newly formed layers of skin. Travis was the same. I made my way through the sliding glass door, which was already open. Instead of seeing the pool and other features that had been there, I found myself back in the veteran's cemetery. Out of the shadows, they stepped. There were five of them, each dressed in Marine Corps dress blues. They marched in a straight line towards me. As the moonlight slowly lit up their pale faces, I recognized Uncle Rick from the far right of the formation. Their eyes, blank, stared straight ahead, seeing nothing and everything at once. The thousand-yard stare, I'd heard my mother call it. I tried to flee back into the house, anywhere, as they continued their slow advance, but my body was frozen with fear. They halted just short of me, heels of their polished dress shoes clicking together, arms locked in tight to their sides. 
The military bearing they mastered in life followed with them into the beyond. I opened my mouth to speak, but the only thing that came out was a weak gurgle, as if my vocal cords were dried up strips of meat dangling uselessly in my throat. The formation of ghost soldiers parted, creating an open lane. Their hands snapped to their covers in unison, saluting as the bottle of Maker's Mark rolled by their feet and knocked into mine. That would not be the end of the procession. Another marine materialized out of the shadows and marched down the lane, stopping mere inches from my face. His frame was massive, skin so black that it melded with the enveloping darkness around him. The whites of his eyes sparkled like mounds of fresh snow. Moonlight glinted off the silver bars on his lapel, as well as the lines of metals adorning his chest, including, most prominently, the silver star. I read the surname etched on a brass nameplate pinned to his chest. Jones. Captain Jones picked up the bottle and pushed it toward me. I took it into my quivering hand and looked at the glass. Instead of my face, the groundskeeper stared back at me. My eyes drifted from the reflection to the hand that held the bottle. Translucent skin hung off the old bones, like clothes put out to dry. A network of black veins spread up the forearm and disappeared from view. I looked back to Captain Jones and noticed now that he was looking past me, into the reflection from the glass of the sliding door. I turned and saw the groundskeeper in full and realized my eternal fate. My mouth struggled to form an oval, but no scream came out. The only thing that emitted from my body were the beams of light shooting from my eyes. They swept like searchlights across the night sky. The instructions were made clear in my bones. When the next Veterans Day came, I was out there amongst the headstones before daybreak to place the bottle of Maker's Mark where it needed to go. Later, as the cars began to stream in, I watched from a distance as my mother paid teary-eyed tribute to her dead brother. I wished to go comfort her, but the time for that had passed. She would recognize me even less now than she did before. joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. 
On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 